Hi, everybody. This is Jim Patton here. I'm your host for the MOH podcast, and we're going to do another Winky Tape today. Uh, today is going to be a little bit different. Uh, as you hear this one, it's uh, kind of rare, and uh, I haven't found this is the first tape I found like this. Normally, we think of these tapes as teaching tapes, and uh, that's because usually they were done uh, at some kind of a, a discipleship training school or something like that. And uh, they were on particular topics. Uh, but this one today is a little different because this is really more like um, uh, more like preaching, more like a sermon than it is like a teaching. And uh, it's it's powerful. It's uh, it's kind of winky on fire here, <laughs> and uh, you can hear if you listen that it was it was done at a camp, and they used to run what what they called consecration camps. Although I heard him misspeak on the tape, he he called it a concentration camp, but that's not what he meant. He meant it's a consecration camp, which was modeled after the idea of concentration camps. Consecration camps they used to have back in the seventies. You'd bring in kids for a week or, or five or six days, and you would have them in sessions learning for 10, 12, 14 hours a day or whatever. They were high-intensity training, which was the pre-runner of the discipleship training schools. And uh, so this was at, done at one of those, and um, I can't tell you uh, at, what point, at what point during the week uh, it was done or if it was actually one of those or not, but it, it reminds me of those, and uh, this is a, a message... Uh, uh, kind of a salva salvation message, and it's called "Road to Ruin." And uh, we're if you're if you're ready, we're ready. So let's let's get going with uh, Winky's "Road to Ruin." I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, the Book of Nehemiah, Book of Nehemiah. And if if you have trouble finding it, like I did, you'll find it on page four hundred and twenty-five in your Bible. It's uh, shortly after Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and just before Job and Psalms. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants. Confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee a word that you have commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though the were of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. 
Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. I don't think there's anything more sad than a city that has been destroyed by an invading army and just left the shell and the bones. Tonight, as we begin this session, I'm looking for God to do a real work, both in my heart and in the hearts of all of us gathered here. And I believe that what happened to Nehemiah's heart when he heard the message what had happened to the city of God had better start happening again to our hearts. They brought him a message. They came and he said, how is the city? How's it going with the people? And they said, the people of God are in great affliction and reproach. And the walls of the city are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And when he heard that word, he broke down and he wept. Now there is a time, I think, for singing and there is a time for rejoicing. There is a time for shouting. There is a time for praise. And there is a time of re-evaluation and there is a time of weeping and there is a time of mourning and there is a time of brokenness. And I think the time is on us now where we must learn how to weep. William Booth was sent a telegram one day by the Salvation Army people who had gone into a little city and had done everything they knew. They'd preached, they'd prayed, they'd fasted, they'd witnessed on the streets and in the houses, they'd witnessed in the bars, they'd gone every possible place, and the city's heart was hard. It would not break. And they sent, at last in desperation, a message to this great man of God, and they said, Mr. Booth, we have tried everything. What can we do now? And Booth sent him back a telegram. Two words. Dry tears. Dry tears. I think we've done just about everything there is to do as far as programs are concerned. And if you had anything like the background that I believe most of you had here, you're thoroughly sick of programs, platform personalities, and Mickey Mouse little things to do. It took me five years to learn that if programs could reach the world, we would have reached it, I think, five years ago. The kids that I worked with and the young men that I worked with and the young women had more programs to doing things than anybody I've ever seen. We worked out a new program every three minutes. And we tried them all. We did every possible thing that we could think of to get kids interested in the gospel. Now we had a lot of kids come. We had a teen safari, people dressed up as, as, um, as lions and gorillas running around in a jungle, and we dropped food on the kids from the plane in a parachute, and we took them all blindfold out there and had cannibals chase them through the jungle to scare the uh, Hades out of them. And uh, 
at the end of all this brilliant thing, we had a number of kids get interested and come, but I think we could count on the fingers of one hand at the end of each section, and each time in the light of eternity, just how many young people would go on and make an impact for Jesus Christ. We tried every program there was. You know, I'm convinced as I read the Bible, the Lord Jesus did not sit down, put a sign outside, synagogue, revival meetings in progress, come and hear the greatest Nazarene that ever walked the face of the earth, synagogue meetings inside, all welcome. The congregational psalm chanting will begin at 7 o'clock. Come early and get a seat. Tony and I would like to do a film one day called The Party. And I've been thinking about it for a long time. The party begins with a sign outside, like a jack chick tract, has on the outside prayer meeting. Seven o'clock to seven ten. And then underneath which the prayer meeting has been preparation for evangelism and revival, then you have that which really draws the church. Adult Sunday school party. Bring your own balloons. That's slide one. Slide two has a picture of a young man blowing up a balloon. He's got his mouth full of crackers. And he's going, and in the middle of his, like this, the camera backs off and comes back again. And instead of that man, you see somebody in another country, and his hand is down too, but he's not blowing up a balloon, he's blowing up a bridge. And then we have some pie throwing competition. We have some men with these big old custard pies, people standing up against the wall sheets draped around them. This guy comes back up and he laughs and he throws a pie. And as his hand comes forward with a pie in it, it freezes right there. And his hand changes and he's not throwing a pie and it's not the same man. It's somebody just in a little, a little way down the road in a university. He's not throwing a pie, he's throwing a Molotov cocktail. And I'm reminded of the words of Leighton Ford as he Recall just what happened before the Russian Revolution. He said the church was in deep discussion and it had been so for three days. They wondered whether they should use a tablecloth on the communion table that had frills on it or just a plain one. And they argued for three days about that. And outside, young people were learning to destroy all the existing system, including the churches inside it, and rebuild a new world order. Sometimes I wonder if our churches have degenerated into a party. And I have walked through the secular world, and I've seen many things that hurt me, but I don't know of anything that has hurt me more than to come into churches and to see the road to ruin has come there too. And I see young people sitting there just like dead people going through motions, and this is not a time to sing. I don't feel happy when I see these kind of things. And I think any man of God at all who has seen this kind of stuff will do what Nehemiah did.
He wept. He wept. He wept and he wept again. Sometimes, as we read statistics like this, and I brought some along, all of you know the statistics, probably seen them. You can read all these different statistics, I don't know whether you even got them, it probably doesn't even matter, about how drug addiction is increasing and how many young people are leaving the church and different people come and say, listen, do you know we've got to do something with our college-age kids? We lose about 80% of them every year. See these kind of statistics that 500,000 kids left home last year and never came back. I just looked up there in the notice board in Bethany, a little picture of a girl split, left the group she was with and took off. little picture there saying, if anybody sees her, we love her. Please contact us so we can bring her back. When we see statistics like the Satanic Church has two million members and growing rapidly, new recruits into this religion, brought in by young people out the streets who walk up to you and say, what do you want most in life? You want a girlfriend, a job, a career, what do you want? You want power? You want money? All you have to do is give your life to Satan. He'll give you whatever you want. Up in San Francisco, some of the statistics we read, typical of many, many cities around the country, the alcoholism, homosexuality, 50% of college campuses, Every one of that 50% will eventually go to harder drugs, to the mind drugs. We see all that kind of stuff. And that may, you know, we look at this stuff and we say, what a tragedy. But I don't think when God sees all these kind of statistics, that's what he's weeping about so much. The real thing that breaks God's heart is what the church feels and what the church is thinking about this. I remember once hearing a story about something that happened during a world war. There were a group of people inside an air raid shelter that faced the street. And the streets were being strafed and bombed by uh, different bombing planes and fighter planes that were just crisscrossing the city with machine gun fire. And the people were inside this quite strong concrete building looking out onto the streets that were being bombed very heavily. And out to their shock, they saw amidst the rubble there a, a little baby playing amongst the rubble. And they saw that somebody's going to have to get that kid in because there were bombs dropping all around. The streets were being crisscrossed with, with the machine gun bullets from these diving planes. And one young man said, I'll go and get it. And he ran out. He began to jump and dive amidst the uh, flash of the bombs and... He nearly made it. He got close to where the kid is, and just as he was running, a line of bullets began to dig holes down through the street, and they intersected where he was running, and the young man flipped over once in the air, and he lay still. And the baby just went on clapping its hands and laughing. It seemed to enjoy all the bombing and the explosions and the, the machine gun sounds. And they looked, and they said, well, he didn't make it. He died. Somebody will have to get that kid. And they looked around. They said, uh, anybody want to volunteer? Would you step forward? The kid, we have to, somebody has to get that kid before it's killed. Just take one step forward. Everybody took two or three backwards. They pointed to the mayor. They said, mayor, uh, you're the leader of us all. 
do you want to uh, go out there and touch somebody and reach somebody? And the mayor said, well, he said, oh, I would like to do that. But he said, somebody's got to direct this city when things finished. And after all, I'm not just thinking of my own skin. I'm thinking of the city as a whole. I think we ought to choose somebody else. He said to the police chief, they said, what about you? He said, well, uh, I've got a wife and kids. You know, I, I've been not just thinking about myself. It's my wife and kids that, that I have to think about. They asked everybody. You know what they decided to do? They thought, well, the baby's not going to come in, so maybe we can attract it in. Nobody wants to go out and get it. So they, uh, they, got, they got balloons, and they blew them up, Mickey Mouse balloons, and they waved the balloons. The baby didn't even look over. They waved the balloons. They, they decided they'd all sing together so the baby might get interested. They sung, they sung, they sung. The baby couldn't even hear the singing because of the bombs and the bullets. They held out big lollipops. They did everything they possibly could to get the baby to come inside. While they were waving their lollipops and their Mickey Mouse balloons and singing, a bomb came down and blew the baby to bits. And I tell you, there's only one way. And that's the way the young man showed 2,000 years ago. To go out, though it costs us our lives, to bring back men from the hell of sin around us. Tonight we want to look at what has happened to the 20th century church to share with you some things that I feel have been close on my heart. I want to give you first of all an overall look. Book of Nehemiah, three things that Nehemiah heard that broke his heart. They said the men are in affliction and reproach. And that's true. The church today is in deep reproach. That's something to weep about. The thing we should be weeping about is not that the church is a back number, but that Jesus Christ's reputation is tied in with his church. And he loved the church, and he died for the church. And we should be weeping that God is being hurt. I see a word in the book of Hebrews that really shakes me to the core. It says, about God concerning some of the people that he's found to love and trust. It says, wherefore he was not ashamed to be called their God. And I wonder if God is ashamed. Some people call him by his name. The reproach. They said the walls are broken down. I think in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 22 and verse 30, God says, 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy and they've oppressed the strange stranger wrongfully. Her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar. They've whitewashed the walls instead of building new ones. And God is talking about the preachers. He said, they've seen vanity and they've divined lies unto them, saying, thus saith the Lord God when the Lord hath not spoken. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. When God comes searching on a nation, he doesn't look at the educators or the politicians. He looks at the pulpits. He looks at you. He looks at me. He looks at our hearts and he asks us where we stand. The Bible says that time has come when judgment must begin in the house of God. So when we look at the ruin of the church, we're not talking about just broken down walls. We're talking about broken down lives. And it's got to start with us. It's got to start in our hearts. Somehow, some way, we've got to give to these young people that come 
looking for a flame, a light, somebody to stand in the gap who can say, I stand in the gap for Jesus Christ. And when God comes visiting this particular part of the nation, he will find one man who dares stand if it costs him his life. And the gates are burned. The gates are burned. What are these gates that have been burned? Surely these are not the gates. The church, I used to think, I used to think when I read this verse in the Bible, Jesus said, I will build my church. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what I used to think that was? I used to think hell was really beating up on the church. Then I read that one day and I realized what it meant. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's not saying, hold the fort for I am coming. He's saying, I'm going to go out and beat a hole in hell. And not even hell's gates are going to stand against the army I put together. I think too long we've sat mumbling our beards, what a rotten thing, something ought to be done about this. Let's do it. And that's what the purpose of this campus is. Some to find both a message and to, to, to begin by dealing with our own hearts to find whether the women men worthy of carrying that message. <coughs> now, there's a lot of movements for evangelism today. There's Campus Crusade, there's uh, uh, InterVarsity Fellowship, there's Teen Challenge, there's uh, Campus Life, there's Voice of Christian Youth, there's all the different assembly programs and the other denominational programs that you've been involved in. There's a large number of different uh, programs for evangelism. And then there's methods of evangelism. We have radio evangelism, television. We've got cassette tape evangelism. We have uh, uh, literature evangelism by books. We've got personal evangelism, street evangelism, mass evangelism, house-to-house -house evangelism, door-to-door -door evangelism tract evangelism. We've got all these forms of evangelism and all these different movements for evangelism. And I want you to know this. These are all wrong and have no right to exist unless staffed by men and women of God. I don't care what our structure is like. It can be efficient. It can be powerful. But God looks at his people. That's where he starts. And the weeping people of God are in reproach. The walls are broken down and the gates are burned. The enemy can walk in any time and kick over the skeleton of the city that has been destroyed. The road to ruin is ended. And all around us we see around in society a collapsing, decaying world. God help us if that decaying world turns to the church and find the same road of ruin is infiltrated there too. I know what Nehemiah did when he heard that news. He not only wept, he went before God and he prayed. And I think if you study this book, you'll find he keeps on doing things like that. When he began the work, in 1-4 he prayed. And that's what I want to do more than anything else in this camp. If we could as a group of men and women come together here in a real biblical unity and pray, we will see spiritual battles fought and won for Jesus Christ. He began the work in prayer. He prayed before the God of heaven. He went to see the king to ask if he could have permission. And the king said, you're sad, aren't you? 
Why do you want, and what, what do you want to make request of? And he shot a prayer up. He's full of prayer, this man, Nehemiah. Every time he gets into problems, he prays. You see, in 4.4, he continued the work in prayer. And right at the end, when they'd finally done the thing, though they had all hell break loose against them, he's still praying. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Let's go to Mark, what we do here. Prayer. I want us to look, first of all, at the death of the culture around us. A good book that is on that book list that I think would be a tremendous challenge to you is Francis Schaeffer's little book, Death in the City. Death in the City. It's an analysis, an exposition of the book of Jeremiah and of Lamentations. Don't take Schaefer unless you're willing to be broken and chopped up and to think a great deal because he'll do that to you. I want to share with you some of that cultural death. Do we have a, a racer here? Uh, here? Is this it here? Right, didn't Soren Kierkegaard said something very interesting one day. He told a story about a clown who was putting on a funny performance in a theater. It was a small theater, but there was a large crowd there. And the manager came rushing onto the stage and he said to the clown, listen, you'll have to clear the building because one of the back exits has caught fire and it's spreading very rapidly. You'll have to tell the people, stop your act right now and tell them to clear out of this place because the place is on fire. The clown came out. He said to the people, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the act is finished. It's over. This place is on fire. And everybody laughed. Funniest thing they'd ever heard of. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm serious. This place is really burning. He pulled his nose off. He pulled his hat off to show he wasn't a clown anymore. He said, listen, it's on fire. They laughed. They thought it was hilarious. He began to stand there getting both angry and, and scared. He said, no, no, get out. It's burning. And they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed. So Kierkegaard said, so I think the world will come to an end. Amid the general applause of people who believe that it is all a joke. Now, I wonder if we've laughed so often in our church and to our kids that they believe everything we say is a joke. God doesn't use funny men. He'll use humor, but he uses first and foremost men and women of God. And if in that we can be joyous, then the kids will respect what we have to say. Here is some of the things that we've seen collapsing. There, there is really a death in the culture, a tremendous death. In San Francisco, I was in a little coffee shop, and I saw a, uh, a picture. I have never been a tremendously interested in art until... I realized just how important art is in reflecting the culture in which we live. And this particular time, I was asking God, help me, God, somehow to, to open my eyes so I can understand what's happening. And I looked at this picture on this coffee, this coffee bar wall, and it's the scariest picture I've ever seen in my life. The color of the picture was kind of an ochre yellow. The whole thing was kind of a dull, ochre yellow. There was no blue in the sky. It was a yellow-brown sky, a completely polluted sky, if you like. The, 
The sun was shining in the sky, but it wasn't really shining. It was just a dull, flat, white disk. There was no sh rays coming out of it at all. Just a white, dead disk sitting in the sky. And the grass, what there was, was not green. It was brown, stubbly with no leaves. Just stick, stick brown all over the place. And the thing that was scary about this picture, there was complete desolation. You saw no trees. No flowers, there was no color in the picture, just as brown, yellow, and white. Except for two kids. There was a girl who was, who was here, uh, just a little girl, as well as girls. Um, have you ever seen those pictures with the, the big eyes that they have? You know, the, the, the artist who does the long eyes with the tears and the very sad-looking eyes? Well, it was a miniaturized face like that with these huge eyes. And the only blue in the picture was in that kid's eyes. And it was a little girl. You could tell that. Her eyes were wide open and she was looking at the world. And behind her here, hidden up into the background of more of this brown gas, was a boy who was looking at the girl with the same kind of eyes. The only blue in the entire picture was in those kids' eyes. And the scary thing is this. Well, those other pictures had big eyes that made you cry. In these two kids' eyes, there was nothing. There were two glass dolls sat there with blue eyes, wide open, looking at the whole world and seeing absolutely nothing. And that picture could have been called death, because that's really what it was. And you know, when the kids lose their dreams, that's really the end of a culture. And here were two kids, dead, dead inside, eyes wide open, looking everywhere, looking for beauty, looking for love, looking for some meaning, and there's nothing but death all around them, a dead world, a dead sky, and even dead inside. And in music, I think it's time we listened hard. You know, when Jonah, the prophet, was sent off to Nineveh, he rebelled against God, Notice Jonah's degree of consecration. Here comes Jonah. God says, Arise, go preach to Nineveh, the preaching I bid you. Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's how consecrated Jonah was. The funny thing about Jonah is that here he is. He's lying down in, inside the boat and he falls asleep when the whole of the storm breaks outside. And the thing about this that really bothers me is that the sinners come down and they shake Jonah and they say, wake up, wake up. Can't you see we're perishing? And when the sinners have to wake up the church, that's really bad news. Listen to these words from um, listen to these words from a couple of songs. Here's one that's written so long ago. Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. It's the story of a preacher, a preacher man, and the story of a girl who grows up in his church. She tries to get a little bit of happiness out of things that happen in the church. Picks up the rice from the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream. And this preacher that preaches in the church, what does he do? Why, his name is Father Mackenzie. He writes the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. What does he care? 
And the chorus goes, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And the last, last part, Eleanor Rigby dies. She dies in the church and she's buried along with her name. Nobody came to her funeral. Father Mackenzie wiping the dust from his hands as he rose from the grave. No one was saved. All those lonely people, where do they come from? And then, what about this one from the song, She's Come Undone. She found a mountain that was far too high and when she found out she couldn't fly, maybe it was too late. It's too late. She's gone too far, she's lost the sun, she's come undone, and then the little chorus, too many churches, and not enough truth. And what about Sunday morning sidewalk? On a Sunday morning sidewalk, wishing, Lord, that I was stoned, for there's something in a Sunday makes a body feel alone, and there's nothing short of dying, half as lonesome as a sound, as a sleepy city sidewalk Sunday morning coming down. And he walks past this man, on this lonely Sunday morning, and he walks past the church, and he hears the kids out inside the church, and they're singing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, and nobody brings him in. And he walks on, lonely. There is tremendous death around us. Death in the culture. And to all of this, we've had three marvelous answers. Here was the first answer. The problems of our world. First answer was really education. These are secular answers now. Education would do it. They said, listen, the reason why people uh, got so many problems is because they're not smart enough. If we could teach them more, give them more stuff, why they'd... Uh, eventually solve their problems. I was with a scientist. This guy had three PhDs. Smartest guy I ever met in my life. And they're all earned. One in chemistry, one in nuclear physics, and uh, one in engineering. This, can you imagine a guy like that with all this stuff? This guy is in a key part of the space program. And this man had come out to see his daughter. Uh, because of a divorce, the... Uh, Daughter had become tremendously rebellious in court when they had tried it for some of the things. She had grabbed a, uh, a sort of a light switch fixture and torn it right out of the wall by the wires. That's how wild she was and angry she was. And they, the court sentenced her to be put in a home. But uh, they didn't know what home they put her in. They put her in a home of a young couple that loved God and that were willing to be a real mother and and dad to her and show her the love of Jesus Christ. And that girl gave her life to Jesus. And she called her dad up. Dad came over bringing his swinging secretary and said, Dad, my life has been changed. I want to talk to you. And uh, the dad brought over his mother, who was this girl's grandmother, of course, to defend him in case he ran into any Christians or anything. And um, this old grandmother said to me, Dear, it's no use you talking to him because he's an atheist. He won't listen. You know, so I thought, well, that's interesting. I'd like to meet him. So we talked a little bit about iron drives and space and things, and then we, I asked him this question. It's a good question. I said, what do you think is a basic answer to the problems the world is facing now? We're in a mess. 
You've been around a lot. You're an intelligent man. What do you think of an answer? You know what he said? People aren't smart enough. Well, you can expect him to say that. <laughs> people aren't smart enough. He said, listen, if, uh, if we could just educate people more, I believe that's true. Part of the Bible uh, thing, and we'll see in a, in a second, is a very heavy stress on thinking. But I tried to point out something to my friend, and it was this, that on this side you can take a man who's a headhunter from New Guinea, and he's only wearing a loincloth and a very sharp machete. On this side, you have a scientist who has a white coat on, stands in front of a very complex console containing the very la latest and large-scale integrated circuitry, and the end of that thing can launch an intercontinental ballistic missile and put it anywhere in the world that he wants to program it for. And now this man here is a lot more educated in a large number of areas than this man over here ever will be. He may not be able to, you know, uh, eat roots as good as this guy can, but, you know, he's at least a lot more informed and he has a lot more study and he knows how to read and a number of other goodies. But what say they both don't like you? They both can make an awful mess of you. <laughs> and just putting a white coat on a man is not going to make him a better person. And I think you'll find, as you go on in life, that it is possible to be a thinker and still be a dirty stinker. And education has not really answered the question. Matter of fact, one young man I know of walked out on stage. This caused quite a considerable shock. The place he came from, they were handing out the degrees. The college he came from, he took his, thanked them profusely, took his degree, walked out in front, And then when everybody paused to find out what in the world he did that for, he said, "My," he said, "I came in here, the school, asking some questions, and I've come out asking the same questions. My education has not prepared me to meet the deepest needs of my life." And he walked off stage. And I've talked to an awful lot of kids that have been through it. every basic education they could lay their hands on. Their hearts are still empty. It's not just education alone, even if you get the right knowledge. Here was another answer, economics. Of course, here's a basic premise of classical Marxism, which we'll get onto a little later, in dealing with the new left and the violence revolution in society. Economics was touted. See, we have this new idea. It's not really new as old as hell. If you change a man's world around him, if you change his environment, you'll change the person. Man is only what you feed him, clothe him, teach him, give him the right kind of bread, you know, then he'll be a beautiful man. And that sounds nice. And about a hundred years ago, there were a lot of very optimistic people talking about building a new society. And a lot of books were written about the utopia that science and, uh, would take care of the problems of our world around us, and then finally when society was cleaned up, we'd have a race of super perfect people. But you notice nobody ever writes books about utopia anymore? Kind of ended with H.G. Wells and a few others. Uh, Tom Skinner writes a very interesting little thing. 
and his words of revolution concerning this. And he says, they looked at some of the neighborhoods that were exploding and they said the reason why a kid throws a brick through a window is that he doesn't have enough. We could supply him with enough, we could change his whole outlook, they said. But if that's true, how do you explain if you go two miles south of that poor neighborhood to the university campus? Here is an upper-class middle kid, upper-middle-class kid, whose old man owns the system, and he's throwing bricks too. He ransacks the school files, he burns the administration building, cuts the telephone lines, and does battle with the police. That kid is arrested, and he has carte blanche, diners club, and American Express cards in his pocket. He has charge cards to the major department stores in town. When the average poor kid was trying to get his first bicycle, he was driving his first T-Bird. And he too is saying, let's burn the system. He has money, he's been educated, his family owns the system. He can have everything he wants. Can you imagine these two passing each other on the street? The poor kid is saying to the rich kid, I'm on my way to the system. You cats done long locked me out for 400 years and I'm on my way to the system to get a piece of the action. Let me tell you something, says the rich kid. I just left the system. My old man owns it and I'm burning it. Economics is not an answer. Now, we have a great deal of, of young people today that I think are romantic, really are romantic. They really believe that if you could just change the world around, somehow you'll have better people in it. I think that's romantic. We have a whole history of mankind's life to see that just changing his conditions is not going to make him better. How is it that the most educated, affluent, prosperous society the world has ever seen, like this one, is going to hell faster than any other time in its history? And there's another answer. And this was a brilliant answer. Well, we need a little bit more religion. Get out the preachers. Let's have some more religion. Marvelous answer. The basic idea of this was if we could put all the churches together and they would solve the problems of the world because everybody has to have a little religion. We've had quite enough religion in this country. Have that's the trouble probably with it. You know how many million people are supposed to be saved? Every year in this country through the efforts of evangelism is supposed to be one million people saved every year. So that's interesting, isn't it? Sure wish I could meet some of those one million people saved every year. You know, I think the average church does have a hundred decisions a month and one kid makes 99 of them. Comes up, goes back, it comes up, goes back. Yes. <laughs> the ecumenic thing makes a basic confusion, and the confusion is this. That this is what will bring harmony to the world. But that is not this. You squish a lot of people together in a telegraph booth, telephone booth, for four hours and see if you've got unity. You take two tomcats and tie their tails together and sling them over a clothesline, you might have unison, but you certainly don't have unity. 
Just putting a lot of religious people together in the same bag is not going to bring us awakening either. And so most of our efforts at combining the churches uh, fail because they fail of a base of unity. They, uh, they fail because they're surface and shallow in this sense. Of just putting people together in one group saying, yay, let's do something about it is not going to change anything. There are real bases to unity. And I think those real bases are these two things. Men must have common knowledge. That's why education is partly important. But the base of education must be biblical. Romans 1 tells us exactly what happens when a society begins to strip God out of their thinking. Eventually, after rejecting God, they become vain in their reasonings, get into deeper and deeper problems and end in a merciless group of people ends in violence. And then the second condition we could call common unselfishness. Man must not only know that which is best, he must also be willing to do that. If you wanted to give a biblical term to each one of these things, I, I suppose you could call this one vision and the top one, knowledge. They're both biblical scriptures concerning this. And I'm going to ask you just to draw a little set of diagrams here as we talk about what has happened to the church and why the wall has been broken down. Uh, let's start with a scripture in the book of Proverbs, chapter 28. And verse, sorry, 29 and verse 18. That scripture reads something like this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's number one requirement for a church to make it, for a, a group who want to uphold the honor of God to make it, they must have vision. Vision is something you see. And vision has to do with lives. It has to do with changed and transformed human beings. Therefore, if we want to see a, a youth group change, or a nation change, or a church change, or a family change, you must start with individuals whose lives are changed. We call that revival. By revival... I do not mean, I do not mean, a meeting which begins on Monday and ends Sunday. That may be a meeting series, but that is not what I mean by revival. I like Charles D. Finney's classic definition. Revival is nothing more or less than a new beginning of obedience to God. God wants you... To be amen Christians, to be able to shout loud, but don't shout it any louder than you can live it. I said that to a preacher friend of mine, and he said, amen. <laughs> Second condition has to do with knowledge. As we develop these series, you'll see some of the reasons why society is in trouble and the church is in trouble. Knowledge 
the scripture here in the book of Hosea. You can find it here. Hosea 4, 6. God says, My people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. Now, I think a nation that first sees both of these together without that line there will see a genuine awakening. We call a restoration of true knowledge to the church reformation. Top revival has to do with a change of conduct, of obedience. It, it concerns unselfishness. The Bible calls this love, this self-giving agape love. The bottom has to do with understanding. It has to do with getting our thinking corrected. The top is to get our hearts right and the bottom is to get our heads straight and they both must be married if we're going to see an awakening. Now, you can have a lot of people praying and asking God to do some things. And some people, even being very sincere and very, um, you know, just hungry to see God do something, but they have to have knowledge. There must be an understanding of what to do, the correct things and the correct uh, pressures that the Spirit of God is trying to put on in a generation to break through. So that second thing is very important. I think when a nation sees both of these two married, you will have a spiritual awakening. What has happened to the moves of God in our generation? I think the first thing that happens is a line starts getting drawn between these two things. And the church begins to split into two different camps by the second generation. We have a group of people who are very gung-ho and experienced. We have another group of people who are very gung-ho on knowing the right things. But a line is being drawn between them and these two camps are polarizing away from each other. First, it just starts with preference. Well, praise the Lord, I prefer to shout rather than think, you know, that's where it's done. The other one says, well, I don't know, I don't like to get fanatical about things. I really, you know, there's got to be careful consideration, you know, that's the way it's done. It doesn't end there, though. Eventually, they get together in a church. Well, praise God for the experiences we have. Chaps down the road that we split away from are getting a little dead. They're still Christians, of course, but not quite so super spiritual as us. These guys down here, who are down the road, said, well, I'm glad those others left us. I think they were a disturbing element in the church. That sister Sophie swung on the chandelier busted the thing right off the... <laughs> That's what they say. And then, eventually, as time goes by and as a generation goes on, that line that we've drawn becomes a concrete fence five miles thick loaded with a million volts of electricity poison gas on both sides and they begin to shoot at each other the split gets wider and wider and wider and finally this group of people start calling that group of people names smart aleck bunch of ungodly intellectuals of 
bunch of dead-hired know-it-alls got too much education for their own good. It's that group. And these group called names a mindless bunch of Bible bangers, emotionally overcharged hillbillies, screaming chandelier swinging fanatics. That's what they call And finally, eventually the split is complete and the group writes, each group writes of the other group as mystery babble and the apostate harlot. <laughs> and then, good friends, what do we have? Why, there arose another generation that knew not the Lord. And we have the kids come along, and by now it's not even experience. Let's just call it feel, because that's all it is. And the bottom one isn't even knowledge anymore. Let's just call facts, but they're not really even facts. You could probably call them just think. And now comes a kid in one of these households. Maybe his dad is a preacher. Maybe his dad is a deacon. Maybe his dad is quite an important person in the church. And understand, his dad may not even be phony like so many are. His dad may be a genuinely sincere person. Just scared of thinking. And this kid says to his dad, Hey, Dad, I was having a discussion at school today, and I just wondered, uh, why do we always go and cry at altars? Dad said, Well, son, it's easy. Um, scripture here in the Bible says, Covering the altar of the Lord with your tears. Right there, see? Kid says, Oh, cool. All right. Tell me, uh, how do you know that's supposed to be in the Bible? Dad says, well, there's another scripture here. It says, all here it is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is proper for doctrine, for reproof, for, you know, and the kid says, how do you know that's supposed to be in the Bible? Dad says, well, I think there's another scripture here that says prophecy came. He says, how about that one? How do Dad says, hey, who have you been talking to? You got a communist teacher at school? He said. The kid says, no, I want to know. Why? How can we be sure? I have a friend, and he thinks that this book is a holier book than the Bible. And he says, well, you've got your Bible. That's fine for you. And I've got my thing. And I've got the Gita. And my friend over there has the Koran. And so-and-so down the road has the writings of Pramahansa Yogananda. And I just want to know. How come this is supposed to be so special? If Jesus says, I am the way that, you know, what makes it different? The dad says, listen, kid, there's one thing you'll have to learn. You don't have to think, baby. You can take it by faith. And when dad says that, he says a very non-Christian thing. You read the Bible and see what God has to say about thinking. And tell me the number one command Jesus gave when he said, Hero is wrong. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And isn't it in Isaiah? 
Old Testament where he says, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Doesn't Romans 12, 1 or 2 say, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, and that word is metamorpho, it's the same word transfigured that's used of Jesus, whose face and raiment and, and clothes were changed and transfigured. Be transfigured by what? By the renewing of your mind. And in his time, Christians had heads that were Christian. We do a tragic thing if we say that Jesus is just another trip, because he certainly isn't. Why am I a Christian? I'm a Christian not only because I have an experience with the living Christ, but because that experience is rooted in fact. Why is Christianity not just a psychological trip? Because we have some facts to base it. I know why this book is unique. I know why Jesus is unique. I remember Tony was in Reedley there, and a girl, uh, he was telling me this, a girl came up to him and, and said, uh, Tony, uh, is this real, all this happening, or is the, are these kids just on a big emotional trip thing? Tony said to her, why are you a Christian? She said, you know, I talked to him, he was supposed to talk about them, and he said, why are you a Christian? She said, well, you know, all my family are Christians and that, and he said, yeah, but why are you a Christian? She said, well, you know, we've all been... You know, we're Christians from way back, and we all go to church. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, these kids know why they're Christians. You've all seen the egg on the head thing, which is well worth repeating. Please give it to your kids. Guy comes up to his friend, and he's got an egg on his head. Fried egg, warm and dripping. Comes up, and he comes to his friend, and he says... Oh, wow. Never guess what's happened to me. The guy says, what's happened to you? He says, you know, I used to be lonely, have an emptiness within, and I used to be taking drugs and things. One day, one of my friends said to me, if you get a fried egg on your head, you'll have peace and happiness and joy and love. The guy says, is that right? He says, yeah, and you never guess what happened to me. I put a fried egg on my head, it was all warm and runny. And suddenly there was this feeling of peace. You know, and I really wish that you'd get a fried egg on your head. The guy says, what are you talking about? You can't tell me if you put a fried egg on your head, you'll get happiness and peace. He says, ah, I used to be a skeptic too. <laughs> I know the battles you're going through. He says, I know you want some evidence. The guy says, yeah. He says, well, why don't you go and talk to Harry? Because he was lonely like me too, and he's got a fried egg on his head, and he's happy. And the guy says, oh, come on. You, can you, are you trying to tell me that by putting a fried egg on your head, you're going to have happiness and peace and joy? And he says, ah, you want proof. I thought you did. Right here I have a purple book. And it says, if you put a fried egg on your head, you will have happiness and peace and joy and love. Now, is there any reason why you ought not to have a fried egg on your head? Mm, jolly bits your life there is. 
If the Christian life is only a fried egg, then for goodness sake, let's not talk about revolution. Let's not talk about a consecration camp. Let's just say, well, let the world do their thing and we'll do ours. And as long as we're both happy, we're all sincere, we're heading in the same direction. When Jesus says the unique things he says, and when this book makes the claims it does, it doesn't make them mindlessly or groundlessly. It is up to us to find out why. And that's the task of the church, again, to be able to think. And what about this kid? Why, he grew up in a home where his dad knew everything there was to know about the Bible. You could press his dad's ear and out would come a stream of scriptures. You bump his dad, wham, and out would come a scripture. Touch not mine anointed, you know, what, whatever, you, whatever you did. But scripture would just pour out of this guy's head. He just knew everything he was. The kid learned the whole Bible by the time he was four, you know, all, at least all the chapter titles. And this kid, before he goes to school in the morning, before he even gets his Wheaties, he gets a study on the meaning of the third color of the fourth red in the tabernacle curtain, its relationship to the millennium angels and this stuff. He knows all there is to know about this stuff. And yet that kid takes a good, long, hard look at what his dad knows, and he also takes a good, long, hard look at what his dad is. Kids are not dumb. They read the Bible. They know where it says don't lie. And yet he's seen his dad say, Oh, um, that's uh, Joe Blow. Tell him I'm not in today because I don't want to see him. I owe him some money. He's not dumb. He reads it. He sees it. He understands it. But he doesn't see anybody do it. You know, that's the one thing that hung me up from giving my life to God. For six years, I believed that the Bible said was, you know, I knew what it said. I could read as well as anybody else. But I never saw one person my age do it. The first person I ever saw do it just blew my whole trip. And six years later, I married her, see? That <laughs> happens. <laughs> what we have to do then, as a church, and the way, the road to restoration, this ruin has come in the church because we've become suspicious of the other side. And I think, I find many kids reacting. You get kids who react to the experience side, and they wind up sometimes rationalists. They're scared to experience anything. They can stand up there with 15 degrees and give a learned and powerful exposition on, you know, one of the chronologies and numbers or something. But there is no move of the Holy Spirit and they don't even expect it anymore. They want to go back to that old mindless thing they came out of. What's wrong with knowledge that excites The Bible says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And I'm only interested in the kind of facts that make me excited about God and his book and his world. Because to me, that's one of the tests of validity of them. And what about this kid? Why, he may just hang up his mind altogether, and you may find him off on a mystical search. Maybe up in Telegraph Avenue. Berkeley, you may be in Greenwich Village. You may go off on a very serious search for meaning, some kind of spiritual reality. This generation, the third generation, is our generation. And a 
it's high time we came back to both obedience and to knowledge. That means that in a camp like this, we're going to have to really apply ourselves to the Word of God and to test and check everything. By his book, by experience, I see Jesus only had two conditions of a disciple, the willingness to learn and the willingness to obey. And I don't care how untalented or how talented you are or how good-looking or hard and good-looking you are or how fat or how skinny you are. We all have our problems, don't we? Those are the two conditions, learn and obey. Knowledge, common unselfishness. Unselfishness, obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Jesus said the test of love is obedience. Let us not have a love that feels good and does not do anything. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavily laden, I will give you rest. Learn of me. And all Jesus did when he came up to man was say, follow me. And that's the whole packet right there. Follow me. Learn of me. Obey me. Because he is the Christian life. Let me share with you now as we close up here some things to think about. Some areas that I believe really need to be restudied and rethought about if we're going to see God honored. Would you write down these? I think these things like the ones we're going to give you now are the kind of fallacies that have killed the experience or the vision provide by providing false knowledge. Here's number one. Sinners need. It's more important than God's honor. A dad and his son. The son is only a little boy. He does not understand all the sacrifices his dad has made. The things that his dad has placed in the inheritance ahead of this boy. The dad gives this kid one simple command. He says, son, do not go out and play on the freeway next door to our home. Because it is dangerous. If you go out there, you may get hit by a car. And just like your puppy, which we lost, you may be killed. Whatever you do, son, I love you. Do not go out on that freeway. And the kid in deliberate disobedience, he's little, he's little enough so that he doesn't really see all the full implications of what his dad said, but he's big enough so he understands he's not supposed to do it. He goes running out on the freeway, he sits right down in the middle and the car comes flashing over the hill and hits him and kills him instantly. And the question is this, who do you feel most sorry for, the boy or his dad? The dad who knew 
far more than that kid ever could, what his son could have been. The dad who went without, maybe sacrificed in order to lay up an inheritance for that boy's life. The dad who loved him and brought him into the world. Or that kid who in deliberate disobedience broke his father's heart. Who do you feel most sorry for? When I see the brokenness of the world around me, I feel sorry, but you know who I feel most sorry for? I feel sorry for God. Why should you see an awakening in your church? Because the kids are leaving? Because they're tired? Because they're getting into sin? Because we have to keep them around the piano singing or the backslide? Because God is being dishonored by the sin of the kids in your church. Because God is being dishonored by the sin of this nation. That's why we should see an awakening. And I think it's significant that when Nehemiah prayed, he first of all stood before God and he said, Oh God, we have sinned against you. We've hurt you. When David broke those commandments of God, he said, Against thee, thee only have I sinned. He knew. Do you remember Nehemiah's plea? Do you remember the first thing he brought before God? Do you remember what he said? We have dealt very corruptly against thee. We have not kept your commandments. Here's another thing. God's laws are impossible to keep. I think it's high time we kick that heresy right out of the church. Here is a society falling apart without structure, without law, without government, without order. And the Christians are happily parroting the world and saying, we can't do what God tells us to do. You'll have to prove that to God. You tell me what law of God you cannot keep if you love the one who gave them. We've got to give some guidelines. God has given us some beautiful laws. I think in our weariness of legalism, which was really a problem about 50 years ago, we've forgotten that it is possible to swing to the opposite and run into antinomianism. If there is no order, no law, and then a nation are headed on the brink of anarchy and hedonism, it is high time we started preaching that God has some commandments which are good commandments. Man and his selfishness and rebellion has broken. Remember it is the law that is a schoolmaster to bring man to Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you had problems interesting young people in the gospel? You come to kids and... You know, it's easy to deal with the hungry kid. You know, every now and then you find a kid and he's done everything there is to do. He's killed, he's dropped drugs, he's had sex as much as he possibly could. He's done everything short of kill himself. And he comes up and he says, man, what do I do next? And you say, try Jesus. And he does and he gets saved. Now that's, I love to find kids like that. You know, that's so beautiful. You just say, all right, that's what you, you see. That's really simple to do. Because the kid's done everything else. But how many kids do you find doing that? All your church young people come up and say, Oh, wow, you know, I can scarcely wait to really give my life wholly out to God. Have you found people like that? I don't think we know how to use the law to break a kid's heart to show him how much he's hurt God. We need to take callous kids, kids who don't care about God, and unsparingly use the law of God as a schoolmaster to bring them to Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be saved when you don't even feel you lost? 
What does a lifesaver mean to a guy who doesn't feel he's drowning? It doesn't mean anything. But when that guy sees his peril before God, when he sees his sentence of death hangs on his heart, and he sees how much he's hurt God and hurt himself and hurt others, then the words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, and your house means something. And three, Christ may be accepted as Savior. And that makes you a Christian. And then if you want to make him Lord, that's optional. If you really want to be a spiritual Christian, then make him Lord. You prove that to me from the scriptures. When 747 times the word Lord is used in the New Testament. And when it's Lord and Savior, it's always in that order. Tell me a selfish man can stand before God and say, Okay, God, get me to heaven, get me out of my problems. And then if you're nice and you do the right things, eventually I may serve you. You know what the problem is with the secular world? They can't see what Christians look like. And you know why? Because we have too many kids in between. Peter Marshall put it this way, too fond of sinning to really enjoy Christianity and too fond of Christianity to really enjoy sinning. I think it's high time we drew a line like this and said, you choose this day whom you'll serve. You serve Jesus Christ or you serve yourself and the devil, but don't think you can stand in between. The Bible says this, does it not? There is a gate which leads to life that is straight and narrow. There is a gate that leads to destruction that is broad and wide. And then there is a middle-class gate with a middle-class freeway for middle-class Christians that need to sort of fit in between because they can't quite make it either way. They don't really want to get out and really be wicked. And they don't really want to give everything to God because they'd lose too much of their fun. Herman Hesse's book, Steppenwolf, has something to say about the man, calls him the bourgeoisie. The absolute is his abhorrence. He may be ready to serve God, but not by giving up the flesh pots. Short, his aim is to make a home for himself, a temperate zone among the violent storms and tempests which an extreme life affords. And then Hess, that secular man writing in 1929, said, a man cannot live intensely except at the cost of his self. You know what Jesus said? Except a man forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Some of the most exciting things I've ever seen is when you walked into a group of kids, you've listed on one side the signs of a kid who's given his life to Jesus Christ, who's sold out for Jesus and loving him and in love with him and living with him. And on this side, the signs of a kid who cares nothing about him. And right there, after you list the signs, the kid's looking and think, yeah, that's cool. Then I said, bow your heads. And I've done it. And I said, how many of you think you're cold? And they look at the absolute sin and they say, well, that's not me, so nobody puts their hand up. And then I say, how many of you are on fire for the Lord? You see your life up on that other side. And I don't get any hands here either. Then I say, where do you think you are? Then I open to Revelation 3.20 and a little bit before. And I say, I'll tell you where you are. Jesus said this, I would that you were cold or hot because you're lukewarm, I'll throw you up. 
And vomit isn't a pretty thing in the sight of God or man. And what God wants us to do is to draw that line. Draw it clear, draw it strong. Say to the kids with heartbreak in your heart, same kind Nehemiah had in his tears, choose you this day who needs I'll say to kids, listen, if you're going to serve yourself and the devil, at least get out and have the honesty to call yourself an atheist. Somebody who practically lives if God does not exist. Get out there if you really believe selfishness will bring happiness and lasting peace and joy to your life. Get out and prove it. And if you're going to serve God, give him everything you've got because this generation is polarizing into those who are for God totally and those who are against him. And we can't afford to have in the church the middle camp that holds it back. When we start drawing lines like this, you may not be popular, but I tell you this, you'll have revival or revolution. This is not going to make you win Jews and influence Greeks. Some pastors are very keen to see a great awakening take place in their young people, providing you add and you don't take any away to begin with. Preacher went into a town, he preached for a week. He said, did you have any additions to the church? He said, no, but I had some blessed subtractions. <laughs> and when we start cleaning out the garbage in the church, we'll see that road to ruin turned around into a road of awakening. And that's what's in my heart. Let's look to God in prayer. So. Heavenly Father, forgive us for a lack of vision because we have walked through the ruins of the church. And we have smiled and laughed with the world, made jokes about something that has brought great grief to your heart. Give us the heartbreak of Nehemiah who sat and wept and he heard of the reproach of the people of God and he heard that the walls were broken down and that gates were burned with fire. Teach us what it means these days to mourn and to fast and to pray before you. Strip from us, O oh God, every prejudice, every self-opinionated way of doing things. We humble ourselves all in this room before thee, the great and mighty God who searches every heart with eyes that are as a flame of fire. And I pray you will restore the broken walls in their own lives. There are stains on our altars, O oh God. There are gaps in our hedges. I pray this week you'll give us some new stones to do some building. You've told us to prepare thy work within and then do the work without. Make us the kind of man and the kind of woman you want us to be. That we may have something to say and be the kind of people you can trust to save. For Jesus. Well, I told you uh, that it was going to be uh, a powerful message. And uh, those of you that think of Winky only as a teacher, you see now he can also preach the gospel. And uh, it is a powerful message. I hope you uh, hope you gain something from it. Uh, don't forget to uh, share these uh, podcasts with your friends. Go to the moh.org website for more materials, uh, discipleship training materials. We have free downloadable tracks. We have 
video messages and then you can uh, purchase full uh, high resolution uh, 1080p versions of uh, the videos at uh, winkypratney.net or winkypratney.com. So thanks for tuning in. I'm Jim Patton. I'll see you next time.